Okay, are we ready for the question and answers today? Guys kind of went to town on the last <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> okay. We'll do what we can, guys. Okay. That one's easy. It's blank. Um. Can a chant be used as an anchor? Would there be drawbacks to using chant as an anchor? What does but do mean? Or voodoo? <laughs> 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 you mean buto? <laughs> buto. Or voodoo, whatever word. <laughs> okay, can a chant be used as an anchor, meaning like a meditation object in the present moment? Yes, yes, you can. Uh, generally, uh, chanting has a lot of benefits. You can actually use it like a meditation, like we do the morning and evening pujas. Um, especially once something like that is, is memorized or if it's bringing up wholesome states of mind then you can get some good concentration going while doing the chanting and uh, it can be energizing you know for example if you get into a, a bit of a rut where it just feels like no energy or no clarity uh, you just try something different just do a bit of chanting see if that uh, kind of um, brings up a different state of mind now, as a meditation object that you would keep going throughout the whole day, you could do a chant, but you'd probably want it to be a fairly short chant, um, like maybe just one line, two lines, four lines at most. Um, you could do something like Anicca Vata Sankara, you know, that, those four lines, um, because they're very meaningful as well. I mean, just the the constant reflection on the meaning of those lines you know, would gradually sink in as well. So uh, the bottom line is whatever works as a meditation object is usually valid. Right? As long as it's uh, assisting to bring up wholesome states of mind and a continuity of awareness. Okay, one down. Bhutto. or or budu. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's spelled, what does but do mean? <laughs> I thought that was kind of zen-like. <laughs> but do. <laughs> That's where you take the flip-flop and go, whack. <laughs> and, uh, first, when they ask a question like that, you go, whack on the head. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> uh, what Bhutto is the Thai word for Buddha and um, so like if you're just repeating a word you could just repeat Buddha 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 for example
Ajahn, you mentioned unified mind where no conceptualization occurs. How does the cru crucified mind? No. How does the unified mind <laughs> exist? Can it exist in a useful way? How does the unified mind exist? Can it exist in a useful way? By useful, I mean purposeful. Well, certainly, um, having an experience of the mind coming together uh, as unified is extremely useful for the purpose of for the purpose of developing insight, for the purpose of purifying one's heart of of uh, anger and uh, greed and uh, the confusion. Um, for every for everything that we would aspire. to, in our Dhamma practice, having the mind come together uh, in a unified way like that uh, is going to give it great energy and support. So it's very useful in that way. Um, and then if the, we don't do it just for fun, you know, and the, the purpose of it is for uh, expediting our experience along the path of practice. So, I hope I answered that. hope I responded to what you were asking. Oh, this is an important one. Why is sugar medicine? <laughs> um, why is sugar medicine? Well, we're allowed certain things in the afternoon, according to the eight precepts, um, because they can uh, give a bit of energy. You know, if you're not having an evening meal, sometimes it's it's fine to have um, something like honey or or a sweet drink, just to give a, a bit of energy. Okay, question number two: How do they get all those colors in a toothpaste tube? <laughs> well, at least, at least the person who asked the question had the courage to sign their name. <laughs> okay, um, it's quite a profound question. I'm not sure I have time to cover the complete scope of that answer. Maybe I'll just set that aside for the time being. Ajahn, why does the untrained mind have a tendency towards ignorance? Why does it create hindrances? If wisdom is latent in, in the very if wisdom is latent in the very beginning, is there a beginning? <laughs> okay. Why does the untrained mind have a tendency towards ignorance? Um, well, the untrained mind is basically ruled by ignorance. Uh, basically, is is ignorance. So, uh, again, the word ignorance is just one translation of the Pali word avijja or uh, moha, uh, which we can translate as delusion, or sometimes it means just wrong knowing, lack 
lack of wisdom uh, or wrong understanding about life. And why it is that way doesn't really matter. It just is that way. And I don't, uh, questions of how, let's see, questions of, let's say, how we ended up in this state, like from the very beginning. The Buddha just considered those to be questions which, um, although interesting, don't really help us that much because what's really important is well, this is the situation that we find ourselves in now. What do we do about it? The Buddha did talk about beginningless time, that uh, there's, there was no conceivable beginning to samsara. Um, I don't know if you, if you can say is if, if wisdom is latent or not. I, it's latent in the sense that we all have that potential. Um, but conventionally it's a quality that needs to be developed. Now the relationship between the hindrances and ignorance uh, is that they constantly reinforce each other. In the twelve-fold link of dependent origination, the Buddha, you know, kind of worked his way back to, well, you know, what what's the reason that there is old age, suffering, and death, and what's escape from that? And he kind of worked worked back in his contemplation, and then finally came back down to ignorance, avijja, as the first step. Uh, but even avijja has a cause, and that's the five hindrances. The five hindrances just keep um, the word? they keep they keep um, fooling us and keep um, propelling us along a path of misunderstanding, giving us um, perceptions of reality which. Um, are skewed and block uh, block wisdom, and then keep reinforcing um, misunderstanding. Okay. Ajahn, what precepts does an arhat follow? All of them. <laughs> yeah. Or, in other words, how does his or her life manifest in terms of sila? Is there anything like in idiosyncratic arhat? <laughs> like one of those crazy disco arhats. <laughs> it's like so wise that he doesn't have to follow ordinary sila. <laughs> well, I'm not there yet, that's for sure. Um, uh, no. <laughs> There's you take the Buddha, for example. The Buddha was a fully enlightened arhat. He could have lived any lifestyle that he pleased. And after his full enlightenment, there was no systematic monastic discipline. There was no vinya as such. He could have chosen to live his life pretty much however he wanted. If he wanted to go back to the palace and live with his family there, you know, he could have. But... Uh, from what I understand about Arhans, that there is 
because their minds are so purified, there's a natural sila. There's just a lot of things which it's impossible for them to do. It's impossible for them to intentionally harm another being. It's impossible for them actually to have romantic relationships. Um, even Sotapanna, I was asking Ajahn Dhan about that, and, and he said even for a Sotapanna, uh, the first level of enlightenment, uh, a person like that understands the law of co- cause and effect so profoundly already that if someone came to them and said, well, look, here's this insect, and uh, and either, uh, what do you say, either either I'm going to kill you or I'm going to kill the insect. You know, which one do you want? And, you know, without question, he says, well, kill me, because uh, I can't um, intentionally kill the insect. Or, you know, I think he said it like he was going to, if someone gave him the gun and said, you know, it's going to force him to kill the insect, otherwise they were going to kill him. He said, well, you know, it's just like impossible, even for someone who has that uh, level of insight to intentionally harm other beings. So there's a natural sila that develops from that. And as the whole monastic discipline um, developed on the conventional level uh, to the point of having 227 rules for the monks and uh, I think 311 for the Bikunese, then the, all the arhants, including the Buddha, were following all of those rules. And some of those rules were, were not ones that are necessary to evil, right? You could do it this way or that way, but not necessary to evil, but um, it was considered proper behavior for the arhants to follow all of the, the monastic discipline, uh, partially as an example, because they were mentors in this community, they were elders, they were um, role models that people would look up to. So certainly of um, in people that are considered um, fully enlightened or close to that, say that I know within uh, the, the within Thailand, I would say that the furthest the furthest I've heard, I mean generally all the forest ajans, you know they they're meticulous in keeping the monastic discipline and all of its refinements. Um, there are sometimes outside of the forest tradition in Thailand uh, ajans here and there who through their own practice, maybe they're not within the forest tradition and they don't have a real strict adherence to the vinya, but they, they still have a reputation as, as having achieved very, very deep wisdom. And one, I, I can think of one in particular, uh, and he handled money, right? And I was normally in um, most of Thai village monasteries, the monks will have money or handle money or when people make donations, you know, whatever, you know, actually touching money. But he would say, you know, for him it's, it's um, he didn't have any attachment to it. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of good reasons for for monks and nuns not having, handling money, um, but that seemed to be as far as I've ever heard of of a fully enlightened person, um, is, you know, as crazy and and wild as they get. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> 
and he wasn't really buying anything bad with the money. You know, he was just probably buying good things with it for the other monks. When using the Budo meditation technique, I find it difficult to stay in conjunction with the breath, as recommended in readings, due to irregularities in the breath. Should I leave the breath and concentrate on uh, a rhythmic Budo? If so, generally, is it better to Budo short and firm, long and drawn out, or something different? Uh, that's a good question. and. Yes, certainly it's no problem to um, do it independent of the breath. And in that way, you know, whatever you're doing, um, you may or may not be aware of the breath, but you can just keep Budo going as a nice, very steady rhythm. And uh, if that works, then great, that's fine. And how you say it, like how forcefully or how gently or how often, you know, in what quick uh, succession, you repeat it. Uh, really, you just need to find out what works to bring the mind into balance. Sometimes repeating it a bit more often will help to you know, make sure the mind doesn't wander. wander. Other times, uh, the mind's already kind of f tranquil, and you just gently re repeat it uh, with larger gaps in between it. just feels more natural. Ajahn, my son told me I was greedy for going on a retreat. Am I a little? I am a little worried. He's a Mahayanist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know they have twelve-step programs for that. <laughs> Never give up hope. Yeah. You probably called you selfish. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the the whole idea of of practicing dhamma as selfish doesn't make any sense, because the whole idea of dhamma practice is to uproot the notion of self and to get away from being selfish and going on a retreat it's a very good investment of time to uh, to put the to put the energy and effort into a situation like this where we can develop the qualities which will actually make us less greedy make us less selfish and um, one of the greatest gifts that we can give our family your family, <laughs> your children, or wives, or immediate family, is reducing, uh, you know, reducing the greed in our heart, or reducing the anger in our heart, or reducing the uh, selfishness in our heart. And if going on a week's retreat helps that, then it's going to have a really positive effect on the whole family. Would you recommend doing the body meditation, deconstruction and construction using someone else's body? 
Yeah. If you haven't really gotten over your attachment to your body, just someone else's body first. And work your way up to your own body. Yeah, just be careful. This is a metaphor, all right? We're not talking like real autopsies. <laughs> you know, so working with visualization. I was thinking of using my father. <laughs> yeah. Get back at the old guy. Oh, oh, but he's been dead now for many years. Well, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Uh, well, no, uh, seriously. <laughs> If, uh, if you're using the powers of visualization, then uh, it is valid to, to do that kind of meditation with other people's bodies as well. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So the answer is yes. That one's easy. When doing a body scan meditation, does it matter on what part of the body you start. No, not really. No, no, you can start start anywhere. Top, bottom, left, right, middle, anywhere is fine. Uh, I traditionally tend to stop at the, start at the top of the head and work your way down, but um, <coughs> it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, the most important thing is to yeah, develop the continuity of awareness and make sure you do, at some point, try to cover the whole body. And um, and just uh, and don't skip over any parts when you do it. Ah, John, is it possible that in some distant future everyone on the earth is awake, enlightened? Very distant. <laughs> Very distant. <laughs> <laughs> How will they feed themselves? <laughs> Very practical question. Right. I like these questions. Well, what would happen if everyone became a monk or a nun? Well, it'd be a very peaceful world for you know 50 years or so. <laughs> How would they feed themselves? Um, well, okay, well, first question, <laughs> first, part, first part of the question, is it possible in some distant future everyone's going to be awake and enlightened? Um, uh, highly unlikely, really. I mean, uh, um, probably the greatest, uh, the greatest number of enlightened people in, in the world at one time seem to have been around the time of the Buddha in terms of what uh, was recorded there. Um, and what happens is that in terms of people who are living in samsara, in, in, in the human realm, when someone does become fully enlightened, then they're no longer reborn. So it's not like they're accumulating, at least not in the, in the human form. And uh, And then more human beings kind of come up from 
or come down from other realms or up from other realms. So I would say probably not. It's not like, you know, it's, uh, it's not like there's such a great momentum of enlightenment happening in the world that it's just going to roll over all delusion everywhere in every country, at least not in the near future. So you won't have to worry about them feeding themselves. <laughs> or will they need to feed at all? right maybe not they'll just live on air <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe some number of people will need to stay unenlightened so that they can feed the arhats <laughs> yeah I'm sure they'll if there's if we really need to keep propagating the species I'm sure there'll be a few volunteers for that <laughs> and, and similarly with you know feeding and cooking okay. Ajahn, what is the difference between ordinary perception and clean perception? Clear. Clear perception. <laughs> How does an arhat perceive the universe? Well, you better ask one. How does an arhat refer to himself or herself? Is an arhat capable of love? <laughs> okay. What is the difference between an ordinary perception and clear perception? Well, it's a matter of degree, really. Even animals have a certain amount of perception and, and sati and mindfulness, but it tends to be kind of foggy. And in our normally normal daily existence, um, just to survive, even if we feel very scattered, we still have to have a certain amount of clear perception in order to function, you know, in society. But just. Uh, by degrees, we can make it more and more clear, um, more and more aware of all the details of what's happening in the present without being lost. How does an arhat perceive the universe? Um, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. Uh, you can write a letter. They should have a uh, one of those newspaper columns. Dear Arha, <laughs> Dear Arha, how do you perceive the universe and how are you going to feed yourself? If I... <laughs> yeah. How does an Arha refer to his, himself or herself? <laughs> you got a funny answer? I was thinking arhat.com. <laughs> There's actually a website in Thailand. One of the famous meditation masters, disciple of Ajahn Man, who's still alive, his name Ajahn Mahabua, and his his kind of um, nickname or or you know informal name is Lung Ta, which means venerable grandfather. And then a few years ago, some disciples of his started up a website for him called lungta.com. <laughs> yeah, so it, it happened. But I'm trying to think of examples. 
See, in Thailand, the Thai language, even, even normal use of the Thai language, people will often refer to themselves in the third person. You know, uh, and it's sort of a, a quirk of the language. And so a lot of the um, math, forest masters that I know will kind of refer to themselves as Ajahn or Prajahn, uh, speaking of themselves. But sometimes they simply say me. <clears throat> Ajahn, why all the theorizing about what happens in enlightenment? What difference does it make? Sounds a bit like a Buddhist heaven. Even if we follow the Buddhist teachings, he was alive at the time, so perhaps he incarnated, incarnated once again. Also, I've enjoyed your guided meditations. <laughs> Is it possible to get the words for future practice? Okay. Why all the theorizing about what happens in enlightenment? Well, most of what I've been talking about is, is trying to get away from the theorizing, uh, trying to get people really focused on what is knowable and practicable right here and now, um, whether it's in meditation or just investigation, investigating the basic nature of what it means to be human. So it's not useful to, to do much theorizing about what happens in enlightenment or the nature of an enlightened mind. It is helpful to have a general basic guideline of, of where we're headed, you know, the purpose, purpose of it all, you know, so that it's, you know, that it, it's meant to be in uh, increase in wholesome states of mind, uh, not an increase in unwholesome states of mind, an increase in, um, in loving kindness, and not an increase in anger. and. Uh, um, a reduction of delusion rather than an increase of delusion, etc. So if you, in that way, if, if you know that, well, whatever happens in enlightenment, uh, the mind is completely pure of raga, dosa, and moha, you know, which the, the gross forms are, are greed, hatred, and delusion, plus all the very, very subtle forms, then you can kind of get a general idea if you're headed in the right direction or not. And in that way, that much is useful. Um, now, yeah, Nibbana, or the four stages of enlightenment, um, very different than a Buddhist heaven. Uh, in Buddhist cosmology, they definitely talk about levels of, of heaven, uh, and that will tend to correspond with um, very pure mental states. Um, for example, if, if you do have really good samadhi, but your insight hasn't yet gone deep enough, then um, that would be a likely cause to be reborn in in heaven, not a Buddhist heaven necessarily, but you know one of the one of the heaven realms. And but all of the all of the heaven realms as well, no matter how refined or long-lasting they are. They're all considered well within the the scope of samsara, birth and death. So all those beings are also considered impermanent. Um, they they're born, they exist, and they die as well. And so there's no real security anywhere uh, within um, 
within the scope of rebirth. Now, enlightenment is significantly different than that, and that's the that's the whole point, is that it actually is like a, a, a leap out of this whole realm of birth and death. And in, in heaven you would still very much have a um, perception of individual beings. Beings will still tend to perceive themselves as, as uh, having um, bodies, easily subtle bodies and minds. Whereas in Nibbana, especially once, for example, if, when an arhat passes away, then the five khandas, the body and mind, as we conceive them, cease completely. So there's no kind of individual um, existence after that point. And what it would be like when the five kantas cease completely, that's just beyond what we can conceptualize. Because all we have to conceptualize with are the five kantas. You know, like for example, Sankara kanta, um, our thinking and uh, uh, conceptualizing apparatus. Ajahn, does rebirth imply a relatively immutable uh, essence that propagates one birth to the next? Uh, no. That would be more um, more the idea of reincarnation, if you want to make a distinction between rebirth and reincarnation. Um, reincarnation would tend to imply that there is some unchanging essence which goes from, from one life to the next. And uh, this is this is what the Buddha was was precisely saying with anatta that there was that that wasn't the case. Now the word atta, uh, which is essentially the same as atman in the in Hindu modern Hindu terminology, refers to some unchanging essence which is our true self or whether that be um, say within our five khandas or outside of our five khandas or um, some combination of the two or pure consciousness uh, some unchanging uh, essence entity you know that's what the idea of atta was and the the basic idea current in India at the time and still maybe is is that uh, this true self would then undergo a number of incarnations until um, until everything became purified, and then it would be that that true self would be unified with um, with the great Brahma, or basically like like the, um, the cosmos. Now, what the Buddha was saying was that no matter where you look, you're not going to find that an unchanging essence as part of this, as part of what it means to be a being in samsara. And that's why the the doctrine of anatta is really what set the Buddhist teaching uh, apart. Is it possible to, with certain practices, control the next birth? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Um, for most people, it is 
kind of out of control. Even if you, even if you do a whole lot of good karma, it's still no guarantee for what's going to happen. Um, but you're, it's becoming more and more likely. You know, if you do a lot of good karma in this life, then it becomes more and more likely than that you'll have a very good rebirth. Um, but in, until Sotapanna, there is no real guarantee of what what kind of rebirth we'll have because all of us, you know, according to Buddhist cosmology, according to what the Buddha taught, all of us since beginningless time have done the whole range of good and bad karma from the very best to the very worst. And um, it's kind of beyond our control n- for normal people of uh, when that karma would ripen. I think if you have um, very good samadhi and control over your mind developed through meditation and for example this this uh, meditation we did where we intentionally go through the process of death then I think uh, that could um, create enough of um, self-awareness and and sense of a kind of control of the whole process of going through uh, from one life to the next. Dear Bhante Chandako, in the book In This Very Life, um, it says Ajahn Chahi, no, that was written by uh, Sayada Upandita, a very good book. In this very life, a meditation experience is described that I have also heard about from various IMS teachers. Also, for example, Mahasi style, quietness, calmness with an anchor in the abdomen, with discrete mental physical phenomena arising and being seen with great speed. The book describes this event as very helpful for a deeper letting go and sense of anatta because of the deep experience of anicca. What is this event? <laughs> so I was going to ask you. What is this? What is this event? Please speak about it and its significance and accessibility for lay and monastic practitioners. Okay. Well, I'm not sure what he's ref- what he's referring to. Uh, for a long time since so I've read the book. It's probably been 15 years or so since I've read that book. Uh, so I'm not quite sure. But sounds good. <laughs> Ajahn, do you know of any rocking meditations? Oh, yeah. We really get down in your rock and roll. Um, it seems logical that there would be some... There would be, since rocking is such a soothing and calming act. Oh. (laughs) I thought you were talking about getting out there with the electric guitars. uh, Well, yeah, you can just, um, you know, once you get past middle age, you just get a rocking chair on your porch. You just rock back and forth. 
And why not? You know, that would be very calming and that would work. No problem. I would think rocking rocking in a med- in a chair like that, in a rocking chair could work. Um, if you're kind of if you're clutching your knees and rocking back and forth, people might wonder. <laughs> if that might not be so conducive to peaceful states of mind. Ajahn, who or what school dismisses samadhi? Also, who or what who or what schools tend to see the samadhi and vipassana as separate forms of practice? Okay. there are well, let's see. There are some teachers, um, mainly out of the Burmese tradition, like for example, there's some in Thailand, um, some in some in Burma as well. But ma- mainly ones who are trained in the Burmese tradition, um, and uh, generally, see, generally in Burma they um, they take the commentaries and the sub commentaries at the exact same level as the suttas. And so if it says something in the sub-commentary, they take it as, you know, the gospel. And and uh, whereas in, generally in Theravada, uh, you know, we always go back to the suttas as being very important and the commentaries as, as well. It's kind of interesting reading, but we always go back to, to the suttas and that takes precedence in terms of importance. Uh, so, um, I, d- I don't want to mention any names so much, mm-hmm. but um, just um, it's more of the Burmese influence. But you know, e- even in Burma, I mean, there's a lot of good practice that happens in Burma for sure. So I'm not saying that's the case. It's just that there there are um, uh, some uh, some schools, um, and they do tend to come from the Burmese tradition. Ajahn, I seem to be drowning in saliva. (laughs) This is great. I think we should have like our column. Dear Ajahn, dear Abby, I seem to be drowning in saliva. (laughs) I am so self-conscious about swallowing. Of course, as soon as I draw my attention to it or try to resist it, I seem to need to swallow even more. Signed, spitting and frustrated. <laughs> cool, I like, I like that. <laughs> uh, I know what you mean. And if there is, if it's a very quiet meditation hall, then it's it's noticeable when people swallow, and you can hear it. Other people around can even hear it. And so sometimes you can be so self-conscious, you're kind of saving up the saliva, 
So you get a whole mouthful of saliva. <laughs> oh, the bell rings soon. <laughs> like, and then, and then finally can't hold anymore, and you, you nearly choke and cough as you swallow it. So I know what it's like. But you know, if you have to swallow, just go ahead and swallow. I mean, it's not that it's not that big a deal. Um, just you know, other people I'm sure will be understanding. And uh, now, spitting. You try to avoid spitting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that that's more difficult for other people to, uh, to, uh, you know, to absorb into their practice when people are spitting during the meditation. But swallowing, fair enough. Um, I don't... Uh, depending on where you hold your tongue, you know, that can make a, big, a bit of difference for some people. You know, for example, if you put your tongue touching on the top of your, the roof of your mouth, you know, that could make a difference. Um, you could try to meditate with your mouth open to increase the amount of evaporation. <laughs> uh, could have a little, could have a little tube that goes down into a, you know, plastic bottle. Just <laughs> but don't worry about it. Just go ahead and swallow. Ajahna, I am stuck with my ego or sense of self. What do I do? <laughs> Kill it? <laughs> Tame it? Use it? Set it free? Uh, restrain it? Inflate it? Or leave it alone? <laughs> it seems that ordinary living is not conducive to clear understanding. How to get clear understanding of self? Well, all of these things that you describe are very much things that happen already. You don't <laughs> you don't have to do a lot of the uh, intentionally inflating it. That tends to come easy. But and uh, attitudes of like trying to kill it that doesn't work. Um, attitude of taming it, uh, I think, is a good way to relate to it. Taming it, using it skillfully. Now, you can use you can use a sense of self skillfully in that you say, "Well, I want to be enlightened, or I want to be a good meditator." Or, I want to be a kind person. So there's still a little bit of self-interest involved in there because it, wouldn't it be nice to be a really kind, loving person with no anger and people would love us so much. Right? And so there's a little bit of, there's, there's still some ego in there with that type of a motivation, but that can propel one then to to start living in that way. And then it starts to, to undermine uh, the sense of self, right? Basically, we have to use the sense of self to get us started, motivate us to undermine 
know, and dissolve the sense of self. It's true that ordinary living is not conducive to clear understanding. That's why we have Dhamma centers and Sanghas and Dhamma communities to try to give people an alternative uh, support, an alternative perce- uh, perceptions and perspectives so that uh, not it's not that we're entirely being uh, it's not that we we only have the influences of um, say advertising or competition or or money or um, a worldly ambition and we come together in communities in like-minded communities to realize that hey actually there's other people who um, are interested in, in things more profound than that and it's a good reminder, and it's a good um, um, it's good for creating a sense of um, strength. Otherwise, it's very very difficult out there in the world alone. Ajahn, I am to beginning to breathe more deeply. In in this, I am noticing that there seems to be places that the breath catches or just can't reach. I think this is physical, but perhaps perception. It's also where I experience pain. Are there techniques to develop deeper breathing? And how can I learn to practice them? Okay. <laughs> when, you, when you do start to you know, really get into your breathing, then yeah, it's very interesting to notice where does it get stuck, because sometimes it just it gets stuck in certain places, and 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 that can be very instructive as to where we're holding on, because mentally, where we're holding on to something might manifest physically in restricting our breath. So, as you breathe and you come up against a place that feels um, a bit constricted or tight then just allow yourself to really you know, push the envelope just a little bit. You know, not, you know, not radically, not like, but you know, just, just breathe into that spot and, and see what happens because that in itself can just loosen up something both physically and mentally to, to bring on a, a real release. Generally, uh, when we're starting to breathe deeper, then that's a sign that both mentally and physically we're getting more relaxed. And so it's generally a good sign. Since external conditions are so important for developing concentration and wisdom, then how can we really say that happens that happiness comes from within. Well, uh, 
to a certain degree, external conditions uh, can assist us in developing concentration. And then that concentration can assist us in developing wisdom. Um, but really, it's, um, it's, a, it's a bit like if you create the special conditions of a retreat, then it can give us a glimpse of what's possible. Maybe a glimpse of uh, a different type of happiness that's coming from within that maybe would just be too covered over or, or would be too distracted with all our, our responsibilities in daily life to be able to notice that or, or get in touch with that. Whereas uh, creating special conditions if it, and then practicing within that if that, if if the result of that is that at least it gives us a bit of a glimpse of what's possible, then we can take that and start applying it into other situations outside the retreat. It becomes easier and easier to to come in contact with that, to be in touch with that. And also, it's important just to. Um, to know that it's possible. Sometimes we, we need a bit of sp special help and assistance. It's a bit like um, children. You know, with, with, with very young children, I mean, normally they need uh, to be protected in a lot of situations and given special help uh, so that they can then gradually learn and become strong and then eventually they can do it themselves. And all of us pretty much are like um, young children learning how to walk the path of the Dhamma. And so it's very helpful uh, for quite a while to have um, special conditions that make it easier until we're, until we're strong. And once people are very strong uh, and, and very established in the path of practice, then that the happiness that comes from within than is much more accessible in any circumstance. Ajahn, in your book you refer to mental awareness. Does this refer to awareness of our mental state? If taken more broadly, it seems to be a truism since all awareness is in our mental faculty. Or am I missing something? Thanks. Well, at least someone's been reading my book. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, probably a good point. Mental awareness. Um, awareness is going to be mental. Right? And uh, it doesn't necessarily refer to awareness merely of the mental state, but um, just awareness in general. The things that really drew me to this tradition was that it was very non-dogmatic and practical. 
So I struggle a bit with concepts of past lives, being reborn, uh, being able to read minds, and some of the other supernatural things talked about. Even some of the chants which I really love can seem a bit like worship. I don't want these feelings to stop me from fully uh, committing to this path. Are these, are these things one must fully believe in to devote their lives to the Dhamma? No, no. Um, precisely, you know, that, that's one distinguish, distinguishing feature about Dhamma practice and about the teachings of the Buddha is that uh, there's very, there's very, very little that you have to kind of believe ahead of time before you can start practicing. And generally, the, the Buddha said, well, this is my experience. Uh, these are the tools I used. And then he encourages us to give it a try for ourselves. And then it's really up to us to find out if these things are true or not. And some things like um, past lives, future lives, um, heaven realms, devas, it, if that doesn't kind of ring true to you, then don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Uh, the thing which is really important is what is the main thing that I try to emphasize over and over again is, is um, developing the meditation, developing awareness from the time we get up in the morning until the time we go to bed at night. Um, sila, samadhi, panya. These are things which we can experience directly here and now within this life. So those are much more important. Um, my own uh, generally I've come to believe in some of this even without having direct experience in it. Um, mainly because of my association with meditation masters in Thailand. Um, and when I first went to Thailand, you know, the ideas of, I wasn't interested in all of the cosmological stuff for rebirth or devas and, and um, psychic powers seemed to be, you know, what's the point? But meeting in private you know, with some of these meditation masters and, and I could just ask them in private where they've got nothing that they need to hide or whatever and I said yeah is this really true you know is it really true that there's other realms that we can't see heaven and hell realms or is it really true that there are ghosts is it really true that there are devas um, my psychic power is real and and uh, basically they all said yeah these are real and these these things do exist and they may not be the most important part of practice uh, they're not the essence of the practice, but they kind of um, go, you know, these things do exist, so they talk about them. Um, probably in terms of, um, say, the, the step of right view of the Noble Eightfold Path, probably the most important one to, to take on maybe just as a working hypothesis, you know, take it on with a grain of salt. 
uh, not with blind belief, but just say, well, maybe you know, try this out, is, is the idea of um, the law of karma extending over many lifetimes. But other things such as um, psychic powers, um, my experience with that is, is generally my understanding now is that on a very basic level, uh, the difference between mental energy and physical matter, it becomes almost indistinguishable. And that if you have mastery over, over mind, over, over mental energy, then it can translate into mastery over physical things as well. So um, even in modern Thailand, you get uh, people who seem to have those kind of abilities. Well, probably one of the well, probably one of the most difficult ones is we actually rise up into the air. Um, but there are stories of of uh, some of the forest masters doing that. Um, Walking on water, walking through walls, being able to walk in through solid objects, um, being able to, yeah, tune into other people's minds. That apparently is one of the easier ones. And I think a lot of people, even just with, with meditation, a lot of ordinary people with meditation become very sensitive. And, you know, it's very... It's not like you just suddenly hear everyone's thoughts like a radio, but you become more and more sensitive to tuning into people. But uh, someone like Ajahn Pik, for example, at one point he just started to be able to hear everyone else's thoughts. And initially it was interesting, but a bit of an annoyance, because most people's thoughts are not <laughs> really worth listening to. <laughs> it's like, you know, the world's noise, we're noisy enough already without adding everyone else's thoughts to it. But then he became more proficient in that and was able to kind of tune tune it like a radio. And you kind of tune into a particular frequency or turn off the radio when you wanted to. So don't let it be an obstacle. You know, if you, um, if you, if you find these things interesting, fine. Uh, if you're not really... Uh, into it and want to focus on um, other things in practice, um, you know, that's the most important thing anyways. Just focus on the heart of, of developing uh, developing the, the Dhamma practice that we can experience here and now. Ajahn, is there such a thing as social Nibbana or enlightened society? How to live in samsara? and be liberated at the same time. Social Nibbana. It's kind of like when you get the arihats together and have a social. <laughs> <laughs> Cookies and coffee. <laughs> so, um, enlightened society. Well, it's a bit like the question uh, we responded to previously. Um, I think all of us, to whatever degree we are developing the Dhamma, then we automatically bring it into society and we affect other people. 
and the ripples, positive, beneficial ripples go out from that. Right? So it's a real gift to go out there and just live with a peaceful mind. How to live in samsara and be liberated at the same time? Well, that's what the meditation masters are doing. You look at the life of Ajahn Chah, I mean, someone who was uh, considered to be fully liberated, and see someone uh, like him with his particular personality, he had, you know, just one person had such an, uh, a huge effect on the world. You know, it's amazing. At his funeral, there were, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people and tens, tens of thousands of monks. And uh, over 300 branch monasteries within Thailand, many about a dozen outside of Thailand, and even after his, even though he's been uh, dead for about 18 years now, uh, still, the number of his disciples is growing. So, that's how you can do it. My mind has been prolic, prolicted, proliferating. Pro, not proliferating. My mind has been something with some really old songs to keep on going. Afflicted. Yeah. <laughs> also, my mind makes up some fantastic inane stories <laughs> without any connection to reality. I bet that doesn't happen to most people. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, bet it, I bet it's only you and no one else. <laughs> Please help me with the songs. Three exclamation marks. Well, that should go together with the rocking meditation. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what's really bad is is when you don't. It's not like your favorite song that's going through your head, but some old jingle from an advertisement from 20 years ago. Or something like that. No, I, I won't say one. If I say one, it's please don't. Please don't. Please don't. Please don't. I don't think there's any specific antidote for that that I know of. Uh, just ignore it. You know, if it's like anything, if you give it energy, it will stick around. If you feed it, it will keep coming back. So if you keep playing it and listening to it, then it's gonna, it's not gonna go anywhere. But if you just ignore it and say, never mind, never mind, it will eventually leave. Um, yeah, the, the uh, imagination is, is uh, it's amazing what the mind can come up with. You do get some really fantastic, inane stories without any connection to reality. Um, but uh, 
yeah, just um, don't identify with it. You just say, well, it's just more mental stuff. Allow it to go. Allow it to dissipate. Ajahn, is it advisable to study multiple techniques? Breath awareness is nourishing and say image vis visualization in the evening and death contemplation at night. Um, yeah, certainly it's no problem to have a few main meditation techniques. Uh, in fact, it can be advisable to have, um, yeah, say, a three or so, um, because that sometimes just doing one uh, can get a bit stale or you kind of get stuck and then you just say okay well let's switch to another one and it seems fresh and there's interest and it's easier to concentrate on it also different techniques can balance each other out for example breath meditation is pretty neutral but then you might want to do metta meditation um, kind of to work on the the anger side or encourage the brahma viharas uh, but then also, you might want to do um, some a bit of body contemplation or, or contemplation of death um, to kind of form a, a well-rounded um, arsenal of practice. <laughs> because if if you just tend to do um, one technique, it can lead to a, a, a little imbalance. I mean, if you're really doing it right, then it will be balanced and it will work fine. But it will be easier to make sure you're in balance if you have a couple different techniques that uh, you're working on. Not too many. You probably don't want to get more than three or so that you're really mastering. But you can experiment with a few and then kind of uh, sift it down to just a few and then master those. Okay, we're getting there. Ajahn, have you ever been in love? That's my business. <laughs> if so, is that something you wish to experience again? X's and O's. <laughs> oh dear. I'm not telling. Um, Is it a woman's writing? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Actually, there was an earlier question which I forgot to refer to. Does an arahant experience love? Well, I would say, I mean, it depends on how you define love, right? Love is like one of those. There's some people love hamburgers, right? But there's something more profound than loving hamburgers. And uh, so the love of a fully enlightened arahant would, would be like all-encompassing, um, unbounded metta. Loving kindness without, it's unconditional, not limited by likes and dislikes. So, the answer to the first question, yes. And, um, well, I don't know. 
Talk to you later. <laughs> oh, this is a long one. Ajahn, when young I had a drug-induced experience and read and searched until finding it only has any correlate in Buddhist understanding. So. Having difficulty reading. Would you like the light on? Yeah. Let me do one in while I'm waiting. Ajahn, <clears throat> can you recommend a basic daily routine that can be integrated with my worldly life? I normally meditate twice a day you know, for 45 minutes from breath awareness. Uh, yes. Keep five precepts, meditate every day, keep developing meditation, develop uh, loving kindness and forgiveness with all the people in your lives, don't beat the dog, <laughs> and, um, and go to all of Mark Nunberg's teachings. <laughs> It'll set you on the right path. Would you please explain stream entry or describe stream entry? Oh, it's just like being in love. <laughs> <laughs> so you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, please. Uh, well, okay. I'd We're running out of time. I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but. Um, the, the first stage of enlightenment, uh, what's significant about that is that um, insight has gone so deep at that point that the mind radically shifts so that momentum towards full enlightenment is just inevitable, right? The, up until that point, even if you're really into the Dhamma for a while, you can still kind of something can happen and, and you get sidetracked for a long time. Uh, I can kind of conceive it like if you're on a long journey to the holy mountain and you've been following a map but then suddenly you turn a corner and, and for the first time ever you can see it in the distance and from that point on it's no longer based on faith. It's no longer based on, well, this makes sense, or other people have told me this map is true and, and, I, and I believe them, but you've actually seen it for yourself, and you've gotten close enough to, to know oh, it does exist, and it's just a matter of time. You can see the, the road going there. So it's a bit like that. So I've heard. Ajahn, are there any fully enlightened beings present in our world today? Would you please raise your hand? <laughs> Don't be shy. How do we know if or when someone is enlightened? Uh, you never know 100%. Um, I think just 
like for me, for after years of being in Thailand and meeting different teachers and then discussing this issue, there seemed to be a certain amount of um, kind of like an um, inner circle res um, recognition. And I would say that there are fully enlightened beings in the world today, um, but not many, that it is a very rare thing. And uh, even in Thailand, uh, they seem to be reducing in number. A lot of the old generation is now gradually passing away, not necessarily being replaced by a younger generation as quickly. Um, with a lot of meditation masters, you may not know for sure exactly, you know, are they what level of enlightenment they're at, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, it sort of matters and doesn't matter. Um, it matters to the extent that if um, if someone presents themselves as enlightened and then they're teaching something you have to really pay attention to what they're teaching because they they might come with I mean you can, get, you can get all sorts of people and some people uh, just overestimate themselves because on the path of practice it's very easy to to overestimate one's level of enlightenment and it happens all the time and so, it, generally, if someone is right coming out in public and saying, I'm enlightened, then that's a sign that they're not. That's a sign to, to really be suspicious, because of all the, the most impressive teachers that I've known, like, never say that in public. At most, at most, they might refer to it in private, or referred, or just refer to it in terms of talking about their experience in meditation and their, their experience of what happened and what when certain defilements were overcome completely. Um, but what it's always um, it's always good to compare a person's teachings with the suttas. Does it? correspond with the suttas or not? Does it correspond with like the main body of, of the tradition's teachings or not? And if someone is presenting themselves as enlightened, um, it may just be charisma, or it may just be um, good samadhi, or it may just be a bit of um, self-inflated delusion. It could be a combination of all those things. Or it may be some real insight as well. Um, the only danger is if someone presents themselves as enlightened and then they're teaching something which would be harmful to other people. Right? And, and occasionally you get that as well. So the short answer is you never really know for sure, um, but just through uh, a gradual uh, experience of being around meditation teachers, you start to get a kind of a feel, a sense, a feel of... Uh, um, how str you know when when there's really an ego absent.
from a person and what that feels like. Okay, final question. When young, I had a drug-induced experience and read and searched until finding it only had any, any correlate in Buddhist understandings of the luminosity of the mind, the oneness of subject-object. This is a disappearance of subject and the oneness of all beings, beings and things. I have read of the, I have read of the problems with this, the lack of preparedness and discipline of the mind, lack of a teacher and discipline, etc. However, it was foundational for my spiritual insight, search, and subsequent practice. Can you comment on this? What is the best way to integrate and develop this insight experience into my practice and spiritual growth? Also, from a young age, I have experienced a sort of luminosity slash oneness. When gazing silently alone at the beautiful, harmonious landscapes, wild places, and even gardens. Is this a form of samadhi? How can I build on and use this in my practice? Many thanks. Okay, let me start from uh, the end here. Now, if you find yourself um, going out to a beautiful landscape, um, a beautiful uh, sunny lake cabin, uh, or off in nature somewhere in the mountains, or at a garden, and, and you find that that is conducive to, to calming and being focused, then yes, that is uh, some samadhi coming up. And you can make use of that in a skillful way. Uh, and that's why it's, it's why we have a forest tradition, is, to, is that if you can go outside the village, outside the towns and the cities, then uh, there's, there's a natural inclination when you're out surrounded by um, forests and mountains to, to be calm and focused and um, you're not surrounded with all the reminders of human egos. So yeah, that uh, certainly is a practical way to integrate that peace and, and, and uh, maybe tune into that kind of peace um, on a daily basis. Um, a number of people I, I've met uh, did actually start off on the spiritual path uh, through having a drug experience, something more than ibuprofen. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, and that uh, can lead to a sense of like radically seeing things different and, and breaking through a lot of the just ordinary habitual ways of looking at things. <clears throat> and then suddenly say, wow, there's a whole different way of looking at things, or you've experienced a, a kind of peace or unity that you've never experienced before. And you think, wow, this drug is fantastic. It's kind of leading me to enlightenment. And you take it a few more times, and then, <laughs> and then uh, eventually the insights stop coming so much, uh, and the, the lessons stop 
happening or they, they don't, they're not really progressing anymore. And then if you take the, you know, if you take um, usually hallucinogenics too much, then it can lead to uh, um, um, kind of disintegration of, uh, of being grounded. In my own experience, <laughs> after uh, um, some uh, after some um, very fun and insightful experimentation in my early years, I came to the conclusion that well, if I want to take this further, then I'm going to have to do it the traditional way, follow the traditional path and actually learn to develop meditation. So um, it, was, it was through that that I got interested in meditation and have stuck with it then. So it has that amount of validity, I think. It can kind of propel people you know, to get started and to see, that, hey, wait a minute, it's a whole other way of looking at life. But then it, it's, it's very limited. You know, and then, uh, but if it gets us started, gets us started on the path of Dhamma practice, then, well, good for us. Okay, so that's the last question. We are a bit behind then in terms of time for the interviews, so maybe we can we just shift all the interview times forward one half an hour. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.